Welcome to the Elevate Together podcast, voices of change in the business of law. Hello, this is Nicole Giantonio, the head of global marketing at Elevate. The podcast episode you're about to hear is part of our next normal leadership series, featuring Elevate's chairman and CEO, Liam Brown, talking with Tracy Yurko, chief legal officer and secretary at Bridgewater. Tracy and Liam talk about implementing change and creating a highly functioning machine to handle repeatable legal work. Listen closely as Tracy describes a culture of getting to your highest and best use. Tracy, thank you for joining me today. Would you take a few minutes to talk a little about who you are, what you do, how you arrived in the role that you have today, please? Great. Well, thank you for having me. Happy to be here. So my name is Tracy Yurko, and I'm the Chief Legal Officer for Bridgewater Associates. For those who don't know, Bridgewater is a global macro hedge fund. We are located in Westport, Connecticut, and we have about $150 billion of assets under management, which makes us, I think, still the largest hedge fund in the world. Talk a little about how did you end up in that role then, Tracy? I began my career practicing at a couple of big law firms and started with a very general corporate practice. I was in the LA office of a New York law firm. If you were a corporate lawyer there, you sort of did anything that smelled a little bit like corporate. So I had exposure to mergers and acquisitions, capital markets, real estate, oil and gas, securities law, you name it. And after about five and a half years, I had exposure to a lot, but I wasn't particularly good at any one thing. And so I transferred to our New York office and started specializing in leveraged finance, which was a relatively new group for Millbank at the time. And you know, Millbank is a bit like, I think they say in Alaska, they have 100 different words for snow. We have 100 different ways to say finance, but I felt that the leveraged finance practice really drew on some of my different experiences. So the M&A work came in handy, the capital markets, the securities law. And so I really worked on leverage buyouts when the market was really robust for that. And then as we had the crisis back in 2007 and 2008, you know, our practice changed and we needed to evolve on the kind of work that we were doing. And I got some exposure to bankruptcy financings. And so what really became, I think, a theme for me and something that I don't think you see as much of in law firms today is being able to adapt and just figuring out how to do things. So I joined Bridgewater in 2012. Jim Comey was the general counsel. And he had said to me when I was interviewing, he said, look, Bridgewater is a place where if you prove that you're capable, you will have more responsibility than you can handle. That was the sale for me. I just said, that sounds like a place that I would like. So I joined the department primarily to be sort of the first deal lawyer they had hired at Bridgewater and to run some of the corporate and commercial transactions type of things that we were doing, but quickly was really given the opportunity to work on anything that we needed to have done. And over time, really spread out my expertise and jumped into things that I had never done before and really was able to just start spanning broadly, which then enabled me to keep taking on more responsibility. I've stepped into this role now. I manage our legal department. We're an interesting legal department for a hedge fund in the sense that we do all the things you would expect for a hedge fund to do. We do fund formations, agreements, and structurings of products for our client investors. We have attorneys that work on our derivatives and trading products to make sure that our investment engine can function the way it needs to function. But we also have a very sort of traditional type of corporate practice in the sense that 
We have employment law. We have IP, privacy, cyber, all kinds of corporate transactions. Then, of course, we have a regulatory function as well. We trade in markets all over the world and we have clients all over the world. And so we're regulated many, many places. And so we have a quite a robust regulatory function as well. You talked there about more responsibility if you volunteer for it. And you also touched upon your experience of joining the business shortly after the last recession. Talk a little about how your role has evolved, the role of the department has evolved, and perhaps how you think the CEO has actually seen the role of legal evolve over the last year. Bridgewater, when I joined in 2012, was just on the tail end of a great growth period for the company. And the legal department was probably a little bit behind. You know, it kind of grew in the front office, as you would expect first. And so it's been this sort of great opportunity that I didn't necessarily expect in arriving, but to really take what was a pretty nascent function and be part of building out a very professional legal department that supports the business. And so I think as we have evolved as a department, the way that we've been perceived within the company has evolved as well. And we have had a very sort of a very purposeful evolution that has gone from organizing ourselves in these are the kinds of lawyers we are to what we think of as a client-facing model. So these are the clients that we serve and designating a relationship person, not unlike I think what you might see at a law firm with a relationship partner, but basically each department has someone in my department who's their relationship lawyer. So they just know, I don't have to figure out who to go to. I just call my person and my person's going to help me navigate. I think doing that has allowed us, one, to understand the business better and their needs, but also to make it easier to pick up the phone, right? To draw us in. And drawing us in early means that we can be strategic partners to people, right? Like we can be part of the idea generation. And so I think we've made a ton of progress. I don't think we're 100% of the way there. There's a couple of threads left for us. We want to be very forward-looking, very anticipatory, not just a reactive department. And so that's, I think, sort of the last turn on the circle for us as a department. And as you know, because Elevate has been a great partner to us in this, one of the things that we have been looking at over the last few years, and to be honest, when we started this exploration, there wasn't a lot out there in the legal landscape, and it's really changing quickly. But we were looking for ways to use technology so that we could take the sort of repeatable layer of work that we thought could be automated and outsourced and free up our lawyers internally so they could be those strategic partners. I think it's one of the things that sort of held us back on that final turn was, hey, there's just the reality of there's a whole bunch of work that needs to get done. And we can't ignore that for these loftier type of explorations. And so we've spent quite a bit of time looking at the work that we do and categorizing it into what's the work that's really strategic and that you need your senior lawyers working on? And what's the work that we could put into processes and use technology and alternative legal service providers to give us that kind of lift? And so we're in that phase now and starting to see ourselves getting that lift. Do you think there's anything about your own personal experience that gave you some kind of either moral authority or persuasion ability or something that helped you bring lawyers along? What do you think made it work with the benefit of hindsight? I think it's probably two things for us. One, 
I'm sort of lucky enough to be at a place that values innovation and pushes. It's a place that whatever you're doing is sort of never enough. You want to constantly, constantly loop and improve. And it's sort of fundamental to the way that Bridgewater, I think, and that Ray has formed things, right? It's test and improve, test and improve, test and improve. And so I think, you know, it started with this fundamental thing of we're at a place that values that, that requires it. We talk about the bar, we set the bar high, but then we move the bar, right? The bar is constantly moving. So I think that laid the foundation of it. And then I think the second thing is having a mindset. Your lawyers have a mindset where they want to grow, they want to learn, they want to do things that are uncomfortable. I think it's very easy to find people who are kind of gotten very comfortable with this is the thing that I do. And there were definitely some people in our department that were more eager to do this exploration than others. But I think we've really gone to a place where we tend to attract people, I think, that have that I want to improve, I want to get better, I want to grow kind of mentality. One of the things that I think about a lot for an in-house legal department, and I think many, many people are in this position is how do I develop people? Because we aren't a law firm where by virtue of sticking around another year, you become another year senior. So how do you find opportunities for people to grow and learn and stretch? Much like the pattern I was describing for my experiences at Bridgewater, which is we started to take this model of how can you stretch people laterally, right? How do you get them working on things that might be outside of their area of expertise, but complementary to it so that they grow in that way. And then I think by stretching that way, you start to be able to elevate into a more senior position because you understand more. And I think from a risk perspective, the lawyers who really understand your business as a whole and your legal risk profile as a whole are just better able to spot risks, to mitigate risks, just to be a part of that. And so I guess that's been the other thing is that we've got this sort of inherent push for people to stretch and grow. And so I think it's a company that values it and people that are comfortable for it and want it. And those two things together have really allowed us, I think, to be successful at this endeavor. As you're speaking, what goes through my mind is that there is something about attracting lawyers that have, I like the word you use, this exploration or curiosity mindset and have them be more connected building relationships with the business. And there is a natural pull by the business to actually expand the panorama of your lens and actually understand how can you help the business. The businesses often are actually grappling with making sure that they focus. There are so many opportunities and so many places they go. There's this natural energy for growth and development. So if you're close to the business, there is this natural opportunity to develop. And then there is this virtuous circle that you touch on there, I think, Tracy, which was that you can better help with risk spotting or issue spotting. You can better participate with insights and input into opportunities. I can see that it also is quite fulfilling for lawyers instead of only seeing their career as one more year of experience. It could be an infinite supply of interesting customer problems to work on in partnership with your internal customer or internal client, depending on the term that you use. So I really like that approach. Your ability to operate digitally is something that lots of law departments, and you touched on it earlier on in the work that you've been doing over the last couple of years about becoming digital and operating digitally. But you are further along than many companies or departments, though I think everyone is rushing. I talk about digital law digital lawyers or digital workers and digital work and the distinctions between the two. 
How did you think about going digital? Why was this something that was a priority for you just a couple of years ago? Yeah, look, I think the early motivators for us, one, again, goes to sort of the ethos of how we are as a company. So we think in machine terms, right? Our founder has this concept of everything can be made into a machine. And then if you have a good machine and you follow your machine, then you're going to have good outcomes and consistent outcomes. And if something goes wrong, right? That's a fundamental thing that we spend a lot of time on is what went wrong? What was the cause of that? Is there something in your machine that needs to be redesigned? Or is it something about the people running the machine? Like what happened? And by focusing on those mistakes or problems, that leads to improvement. For us, we'd always sort of thought in that way. And we had these processes But they were processes written down by lawyers. And so it was like we had something there, but we knew we needed help to streamline it. And then to maybe we thought we could technology enable this. Then when you talk about a machine running consistently, right? Like people make errors. Computers don't really make errors or technology. Once you program it right, doesn't really make errors. So it just became more of the like the evolution of our machine. And to create something that would run faster, more efficiently, and more consistently. That doesn't sound like something you'd hear from a a lawyer from an elite law firm. I wonder if there's something about working at a place where the insights that your traders have, for example, it's almost their professional judgment, powered by, supported by, enabled by the machines that they operate. So it might be that you work at a place where actually this is something where you can feel really good about your professional training and judgment and feel good about being supported and enabled by machines as opposed to being in competition with them. I'm definitely not willing to say that I and my other senior lawyers are ready to be replaced by machines, at least not yet. We have a saying we call, get to your highest and best use. This technology was the way for us to get to our highest and best use as lawyers and to steal your word, right? To elevate us, to lift us up so that we were able to do the kind of work we all really wanted to be doing anyhow. I don't think these machines can replace us yet. Maybe someday, but certainly not yet. You still need the judgment. That is how we have thought of it. And I don't think any of us has felt so far threatened for our job. It's felt very freeing because it's really taking a layer of work that you didn't need a senior, sophisticated lawyer to do. It wasn't really lawyering, having the technology do that. And what it's done for our people I mean, I'll give an example in the regulatory space where I think we were even earlier adopters of being able to do some outsourcing. But regulatory space, we had a lot of processes that were very sort of manual, repetitive types of tasks. We love to hire really bright, motivated people. And it became hard to keep people in those jobs because we'd hire these really talented people and they'd come in and they'd do some work with us. And then we had this great track record of sort of moving them into other areas of the business, kind of a little little incubator, if you will, or they'd move on to a role somewhere else. And now instead, we have some technology and outsourcing that do that work. And we have a couple of people who now manage that, right? They manage a whole team of people doing that and they're in charge of the whole thing instead of just being part of it. And so I think that it's just created the kind of job that just as a bigger, more challenging job that keeps people in seats. The turnover that we've had has gone way down because people feel more fulfilled in their jobs because they're doing things that are more challenging for them. You talk a little there about the downstream positive consequence or the corollary of doing this. Let's look upstream, moving outside of digital. When I was preparing for this call, I saw how much 
work you had done personally on inviting different points of view, different ways of thinking to the table, both inside Bridgewater and with outside counsel generally. There's been a lot of discussion amongst your general counsel peers about the importance of bringing in people with different backgrounds. Why is this important to you? Why do you think it's important to the legal industry? Why do you think it's important to business generally? And how do you go about trying to actually make a difference? It's hard to dispute the idea that the more different perspectives and ideas you have at the table, the more chances you have of getting to the best result. At Bridgewater, one of our sort of fundamental tenets is that we want to have an idea meritocracy. Luckily, I think it's really difficult to have an idea meritocracy if you don't have a lot of different perspectives at the table. And so I think that from a legal point of view too, right? People come at this a lot of different ways when you're thinking about how to identify and mitigate risk. And so there's sort of that classic slide. You're going to do a project. Do you want a bunch of different hammers or do you want a whole different toolbox with different tools? I want the latter. We've tried to do a variety of things you know, at the company level, then at the department level. And that's one of the things I think that's great that Bridgewater has done is they've certainly led as a company to say, here's what we think about DNI and here's what we're going to do about it. But they've also empowered people at their own department level to do things that are meaningful and matter to their department. And so some of the things that we've done at the department level is, for example, last year we sent out, there was a a survey, I think it was the ABA put together, that we sent out to all of our law firms. And we just said, hey, we want you to fill this out. We want to understand what is your diversity profile look like? What does it look like on our matters? How are our matters being staffed? It was meant more to be like, let's hold each other accountable to these things. But really getting back, you know, just a profile where we can see, okay, here's where our firms are doing well. Here's where they're not doing well. And then here's how we're doing. And so I mean, part of this started, honestly, Liam, because I had met a partner at one of our law firms in the city for coffee. And we happened to go to the same law school. And we sat down at the table and she slid an envelope across the table to me. And she said, I pulled all the matters that you have with our firm. And here's how many women that you have. Here's how many minorities you have work. And it blew me away. And it was great. She was holding me accountable to say, you need to demand more on this from us. And so that was what got me motivated to say, hey, how are we doing with all of our firms? And so now we've got a clear picture of that and we're able to say, hey, we want to make sure that our matters are being staffed in a particular way, in a representative way, and sending the message that it matters to us. And I think when the clients tell the law firms it matters to the clients, it's going to matter to the law firms. So that's one of the ways I think we've been able to sort of use our spending power to try to have an impact. Separately, one of the things that we put together last year and are launching now is a pro bono program. We haven't had that internally, but basically creating easy ways for people in the department to get involved in things that they care about. And so we surveyed what are the things that people care about and wouldn't surprise you, racial justice, immigration rights, and then veterans affairs were sort of the three big things that came out of our survey. And so those are the priorities for our pro bono program. And so I think that's another way for us to sort of support things that are meaningful to people in our department. We've done trainings and we've created sort of a separate budget for people to do things that are meaningful to them around diversity and inclusion. And I think these things, they all combine together and amplify and multiply. It sets the tone. We care about this as a department. And then I think people 
feel like they can be their best selves. And then you're going to attract people that also care about those things. It becomes a place that's developing people, that's inclusive, and that is attracting the kind of talent that you want. And that's been our approach to all of that. What I love about hearing the way that you've led on this, which resonates for me personally as a business leader, it's providing the forum and the space and support for the topics and issues that do matter to them personally or as groups. I'd like to always end on two questions. Ask you the first question so you can think about it in the back of your mind for a moment. And it is leadership in tough times requires dot, dot, dot. So then please finish that sentence. So that's marinating in the back of your mind. Have you had experience with mentorship in your career? And what was that? And what advice do you have either for others as mentors or others as mentees? I have been the beneficiary of many wonderful mentors, many of whom I still rely on today. And I think they're just critically important to development, just to have someone that's investing time in you. And by the way, I think some of those have been really mutually beneficial relationships, if you will. They invested time in me, made me better. And I worked for a lot of those people. So they got better results out of me. And sitting where I sit now, I see that perhaps they weren't as as selfless as I once thought they were. But I've been amazed at how much people really have done this for me in a way that does like feel selfless. And I think people get a lot out of being a mentor. And so my advice to young people is don't be afraid to ask for mentorship and to seek mentors out. I think you would be surprised how willing people are to do that. It's easier than ever now with Zoom. It doesn't take a huge commitment of time to pull that out to people. The thing I would say is if you do get someone to do that, you know, have your agenda, have your questions ready, have it thought through so you can get the most out of people. And then I think my advice to mentors, and I think I've been on both sides of this, is don't underestimate how important your mentorship is to people. First of all, just a big believer in representation and the idea like, if I can see it, I can be it. And for me, just to see other women doing amazing things, it's so inspirational. Mentors should not underestimate the impact that they can have simply sometimes by just doing what they're doing. Thank you. I hope you've had a chance to think about this. Leadership in tough times requires dot, dot, dot. My three words would be grace under fire. I've certainly had time to think about this question over the past year, but it's been something that been a part of the way that I work for a long time, for most of my career. And I think it is so important for general counsels, but also for all leaders to really set the tone during tough times or during crisis. If you are calm, the people around you will be calm. It sets the tone. And I think that when people know that they can come to you, and there's going to be this calmness, you're going to get the unfiltered view. People are not going to be afraid to tell you the problems that are going on, and they're not going to sugarcoat them, right? They're just going to come to you and say, this is what's happening. And I think during tough times, getting that truth, that accuracy of what's going on is really critical to working your way through it. We certainly had a year of fire, so lots of opportunity to have experimented with and tried to be graceful. Tracy, thank you very, very much. It's been fun. Thanks so much, Liam. Great talking to you. Tune in to the next episode of the Elevate Together podcast. Available on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and elevateservices.com.